0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our briefing this afternoon. My name is Carol Warner. I'm the executive director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. I'm very, very pleased to welcome you to this afternoon's briefing. And to also, on, on behalf of EESI and also our uh, uh, partnering organization for this, the China Facts Project of the, of the uh, World Resources Institute, WRI, we're particularly pleased that you are all here. We see this as an extremely important topic at a very, very important time. Our theme this afternoon is what action is China taking with regard to climate change. I think for policymakers on Capitol Hill for a number of years, there has been a huge issue in terms of policy discussions about climate, about energy, the role of China, the role of the United States with regard to international negotiations. So there have been many questions, issues throughout the years. It has affected uh, much uh, conversation, congressional hearings, uh, many, many discussions. And we are now at another place as things continue to move forward, continue to evolve. And this a very, very important discussion that is affecting us globally with regard to climate change, the actions of countries globally to address the impacts, to address the causes, to find ways to mitigate, to adapt. And so at this time, I am very pleased to introduce my colleague, Paul Jaffe, who is the Senior Foreign Policy Counsel for the World Resources Institute.
1: Thank you very much, Carol. Um, I'm pleased to welcome everyone uh, to our panel on what action China is taking on climate change. Uh, Let me express uh, our thanks to our co-sponsor, EESI, uh, for their great work in helping us uh, put this together and I'm glad to welcome you on behalf of the China FAQ's project of WRI. We call it the China Facts Project, facilitating a network of over 50 academic and think tank China energy experts available day in and day out to answer questions. Today's uh, panel... (coughs) takes place at a pivotal moment, only a few months ahead of uh, the Paris uh, Climate Conference and with time running out on the Earth's calendar. China and the U.S. are the largest emitters, of course, of greenhouse gases, but both are stepping up to the challenge. Today, our focus is on China, but WRI recently released a report showing how the U.S. can meet the 2025 climate target using existing federal laws and state action. But for China, China has broken records and amazed the world with economic growth and lifting millions from poverty, but now it's at a turning point. Everyone has seen the pictures of the people in China's cities wearing masks to try to avoid breathing the worst pollution. This is a driver of action, but so is the desire for energy security, the desire to avoid impacts on agriculture and coastal populations and to attain the economic benefits of a shift to low-carbon energy. So when people ask, is China going to take action, we we don't really need to have much doubt that they are very motivated to take action, and of course, have been taking action. In November 2014, in its joint announcement with the United States, China made its first pledge to peak emissions. In the years leading up to that moment, China put in place the foundation for its pledge with steps on renewable energy, efficiency, limiting coal, and economic rebalancing. China's recently announced contribution, the so-called INDC, for the climate negotiations makes the November pledge official at the UN uh, FCCC, that's the Climate Convention and elaborates further on that uh, previous pledge. Cooperation between China and the US has focused on technologies and projects needed to boost momentum in both countries. And we're going to hear about that cooperation today as well. Uh, The experts on today's panel, and I was going to say we have a distinguished group of experts here, I'm noticing we also have a distinguished audience. So uh, we'll look forward to the conversation after the everyone has uh, presented. Uh, today's panel is well-placed to help us move from the frequent misunderstandings about China to real knowledge of what is going on. In the past, it was sometimes said that China wasn't doing much of anything on low-carbon energy. Today, certainly by now we can put those misunderstandings aside we will hear what China is doing and what it plans to do we will hear about the real challenges and and opportunities, the serious steps China is taking to address climate change, contributing to the momentum for the global effort and we'll hear about the prospects for the future so to move to our panel, what we're going to do is uh, have all the panelists speak first, ask you to hold your questions, and when the panel is finished, then we'll have discussion, and Carol's going to moderate that. Um, I'm just going to mention who's on the panel to start out with, and then as we move to each panelist, I'll give you an additional <coughs> Uh, sentence or two. Uh, So uh, our first uh, speaker is going to be David Vance Wagner, who's sitting right here to my left from the State Department. And um, our second speaker is going to be Professor Joanna Lewis, on my right here, from Georgetown University. And then Dr. Wang Tao, uh, resident scholar at Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy in Beijing, and we really appreciate his being here, coming all the way from Beijing to be with us, and Clay Nestler, uh, on my left here, from Johnson Controls. So uh, we're going to begin the discussion with uh, Vance Wagner. Uh, Vance uh, serves as the China Counselor in the Office of the Special Envoy for Climate Change, Todd Stern, at the US Department of State. Uh, His work enables US-China constructive U.S.-China dialogue and collaboration on climate change in the context of the global climate negotiations, as well as bilateral cooperative initiatives, especially through the U.S.-China Climate Change Working Group. And uh, beyond all those titles uh, and and committees, he is the guy, the go-to guy on U.S.-China collaboration so uh, we're interested in hearing your remarks and uh, we're going to have each of the panelists come to the uh, podium and then we'll do the Q&A from the tables Uh,
0: I might just mention there are some seats up here in the front there's a whole row
2: okay thank you thanks very much Paul Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, It's really a pleasure to uh, kick the panel off. It's a very distinguished panel with some good friends of mine. I'm going to start just by sharing some thoughts and perspectives on recent China climate developments, uh, looking primarily through the lens of U.S.-China engagement on this issue. Uh, Just to start with a little bit of the big picture and echoing what Paul said Uh, China and the United States are the world's largest emitters of greenhouse gases. Uh, Together, our two countries uh, emit over one-third of net global greenhouse gas emissions. What this means is that while we can't solve the problem alone, it's clear that any global solution to climate change will depend uh, in large part on what our two countries uh, do. Fortunately, climate change dialogue and cooperation uh, between the United States and China uh, are stronger than ever. Um, Both sides uh, at the highest levels see climate change as a high priority and a positive area in the bilateral relationship. And for evidence of this, one only needs to look to last November and the joint announcement that Paul mentioned when President Obama and President Xi Jinping uh, stood together in Beijing and made this historic joint announcement on climate change. Uh, Last November's joint announcement, I think, was widely seen as a success. I'm going to mention a couple highlights from that announcement. First, the United States and China each announced respective post-2020 climate targets. The U.S. target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025 and make best efforts to reach 28 percent. China announced two targets. The first, to peak CO2 emissions around 2030, uh, with best efforts to peak earlier. The second target, to increase the share of non-fossil fuels in primary energy consumption to around 20% by 2030. Uh, Both the U.S. and the Chinese targets are ambitious and achievable, and, as noted explicitly in the text of the announcement, are part of the longer-range effort to transition to low-carbon economies, uh, mindful of the global goal of 2 degrees Celsius. The joint announcement generated huge momentum in the global climate community. Uh, For the two largest emitters, uh, countries that were historically seen as adversaries in the global climate negotiations, for these two presidents to stand together and say, we are both committed to doing our part, to working constructively together to face the climate challenge. Uh, this had immediate impacts, and that isn't just in an abstract way. So just weeks after the joint announcement at the uh, climate conference in Lima, Peru, uh, language from the U.S.-China joint announcement was actually uh, adopted into the Lima Accord, and was credited with breaking an impasse uh, in those negotiations. And let me say a few words about the targets themselves in the joint announcement. They were announced last November as respective goals uh, that each country is to achieve. Subsequently, as mentioned by Paul, these targets were formally submitted to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC in this form of, in UNFCCC speak, the INDC, the Intended Nationally Determined Contribution. The United States, we submitted our INDC at the end of March, and China submitted theirs at the end of June. China's INDC included four targets. Okay, The two targets from the joint announcement, peak CO2, non-fossil energy, as well as uh, additional targets on carbon intensity reduction and on afforestation. In addition, China's INDC includes a, a, a lengthy list of policies and measures that China intends to adopt to achieve those targets. And that list includes everything from a national cap-and-trade program to uh, c- controlling total coal consumption to promoting green buildings, increasing public transit, and more. In fact, this is China's INDC is the longest, uh, the longest to date. Now, I'm sure that all the other panelists are going to talk more in detail about these targets and these actions. Uh, what I'd like to say is that as a package, the targets and actions represent an ambitious effort that will require substantial new policies, economic reform, and investments in clean, te- clean technology, renewable energy, uh, technology innovation. And achieving these targets will require uh, substantial action by China that represents a significant Derivation from a business as usual or a a, a no action scenario. Now, for the last part of my comments, I want to move away from the targets and talk about bilateral cooperation. Uh, It's important to remember the joint announcement, you know, the targets of the joint announcement got all of the publicity, but we shouldn't forget that the joint announcement also included expanded and deepened uh, substantive on the ground cooperation across a wide variety of sectors. Uh, And this sends a clear message that the two countries are committed at the highest levels, not just to setting these uh, in the future long-term targets, but by working side by side to achieve these targets, to support achieving these targets, and complete the the long-term transition to low-carbon economies. Now our bilateral cooperation on climate and clean energy with China is uh, quite diverse and comprehensive. It's guided by uh, several frameworks and mechanisms. The premier mechanism for climate cooperation between the United States and China is the U.S.-China Climate Change Working Group, the CCWG. The CCWG was launched by Secretary Kerry in April of 2013 and it now has grown to cover eight action initiatives on motor vehicles, smart grids, carbon capture, energy efficiency, GSG data, forests, cities, and boilers. In addition, we have worked with China through the CCWG on reducing uh, hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, and an extended policy dialogue, and we're always looking for additional areas to expand. Other U.S.-China mechanisms include the 10-Year Framework for Cooperation in the Energy and Environment, which oversees the very successful EcoPartnerships program, which some of you may be familiar with or may be a part of, that uh, celebrates subnational actors, partnerships between the U.S. and China to... Uh, share best practices, demonstrate innovative solutions. Uh, on top of that, we have the US China Clean Energy Research Center, uh, and the list goes on. Together, these initiatives paint a comprehensive uh, picture of cooperation that engages across numerous sectors and uh, engages with a variety of actors, not just the central and federal governments, but subnational governments, private sector. Uh, universities, civil society, NGOs, and more. Each initiative is structured differently. Uh, Some of them are focused mainly on uh, national policy uh, experience sharing through workshops, study tours, exchanges, and such. So, For example, our Climate Change Working Group collaboration with China uh, on trucks and buses focuses on sharing uh, U.S. best practice experience to reduce emissions, increase efficiency, improve compliance and enforcement, and I think this has been a, a, a contributor to what we've seen, which is major domestic policy progress in China in recent years in this sector. Other initiatives are more hands-on. Our Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage Initiative has six demonstration projects. Each demonstration project has a partner in the U.S. and the China uh, working to, to, to demo and research and explore various new cost-effective CCUS technologies that... Uh, most models assume will be a part of the, the long-term effort to meet the climate challenge. Final example, we're, we're always looking for ways to uh, leverage and highlight private sector engagement. I know Clay is going to talk more about this. Stressing market and economic opportunities in climate mitigation. So our, For example, our energy efficiency uh, initiative under the CCWG looks at the energy performance contracts markets in both countries. It's a market worth some $8 billion dollars Uh, in the United States and $12 billion billion in China. And we're now entering into a phase to solicit private sector pilot programs that demonstrate innovative financing and contracting and measurement and verification in this energy performance contract space. So I'm wrapping up now. Uh, This is a good time for this discussion because three weeks ago we completed the U.S.-China Strategic and Economic Dialogue, our, our annual meeting uh, the SNED, our ongoing robust progress on climate change emerged from the SNED as a very positive story. And what I brought, I brought a bunch of copies of the climate change fact sheet that came out of the SNED, and I'd be happy to distribute that because it's a pretty good uh, summary uh, and stock taking of where we're at and, and where we're going. So, in conclusion, uh, let me just repeat something I said earlier that U.S. China climate cooperation is stronger than ever. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a, a huge amount of work to do. Um, on the one hand, we have a huge amount of work to do this year, working with China and with other countries to achieve an ambitious, successful global climate agreement uh, this December in Paris. But on the other hand, and thinking about this bilateral cooperation, we have an even more important role to play working together with China to achieve our target, to achieve this long-term transition to low-carbon societies that science says we must achieve if we are to avoid the worst impact of climate change. So President Obama uh, said that the United States and China have a, a special responsibility to lead the global effort against climate change. And I think that the respective targets that we've set, the domestic actions that we're taking, and the bilateral cooperation we have underway demonstrates that we're living up to this responsibility.
1: Thank you, Vance. I'd like to now introduce uh, Professor Joanna Lewis, uh, one of the foremost uh, scholars uh, in the field of China's shift to low-carbon energy Professor of Science, Technology, and International Affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service Um, and author of a recent book, Green Innovation in China, China's Wind Power Industry and the Global Transition to a Low-Carbon Economy. Well uh, worth uh, time to take a look at that. And uh, I won't... uh, tell you all of uh, her career, but she has uh, worked at the White House Council on Environmental Quality and was a visiting scholar at uh, Tsinghua University in Beijing, Uh, so uh, that among many other credentials, and uh, Joanna, we're glad to have you speak today.
3: Thanks, Paul. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, So I'm going to sort of pick up uh, on Vance's remarks uh, and talk a bit about the specific targets that China has put forward um, in the last month in the context of its uh, INDC. Um, So as Vance mentioned, there are these four targets here, namely to achieve the peaking of carbon dioxide emissions uh, around 2030 and, and potentially earlier, uh, to lower carbon dioxide emissions per unit of GDP. This is the carbon intensity target, uh, 60 to 65% from 2005 levels by 2030, uh, to increase the share of non-fossil fuels in primary energy consumption to 20% by 2030. Um, and then there's a fourth target um, to increase forest stock volume. Uh, I'm going to focus primarily on the first three. Um, and so, of course, the first uh, two of the targets, the non-fossil target and the peak Uh, year uh, were part of the joint U.S.-China climate announcement last November, uh, which was met by a lot of fanfare here in Washington and around the world. Um, And what I want to do this afternoon is review the context and ambition of these targets based on what we know, uh, the modeling studies that are out there, the scenarios and projections, all of which, of course, are based on um, the best information we have and are frequently wrong <laughs> um, but we, it's, it's sort of the best we can do to try to understand what do these targets mean and uh, to what extent they may or may not deviate from business as usual um, now I think it's first of all important to point out that uh, when looking at this question of whether China has actually agreed to do anything new here which is a question that I get asked a lot Um, This is, in fact, the first time that China has pledged an emissions peak, Um, so even the mention of a peaking of emissions would have been unheard of, I think, several years ago. Um, Most of China's targets up until the last few months were in intensity-based terms, um, starting with energy intensity targets back in the 11th five-year plan uh, in 2006, and then more recently the carbon intensity targets that were announced prior to the, the climate meetings in Copenhagen in 2009. Um, And so we now have a new carbon intensity target, which continues and extends the push to decrease both energy and carbon intensity in the country. Uh, The non-fossil target is, again, um, something we've seen before, but nothing um, that has gone through 2030, um, and it will indeed require continued commitment to non-fossil energy deployment and the associated infrastructure that will allow uh, low-carbon energy renewables in particular to be deployed at such a large scale, including increased transmission infrastructure Um, And technologies to increase uh, integration of renewables Um, and of course now that we've seen uh, the targets that were mentioned in November translate into the INDC along with the new targets I think this is extremely important for momentum leading into Paris at the end of the year. So the question of when China's emissions will peak um, is is certainly extremely important Um, so they pledged to peak uh, by 2030 and in fact um, there have been very few studies that show that 20, a 2030 peak was sort of likely, um, likely, particularly you know under any sort of reference scenario or business as usual scenario. Most projections, including the most recent projection that was published by the U.S. Department of Energy's Energy Information Administration, uh, show China peaking under a reference scenario sometime at around 2040 or later. Um, So, in fact, 2030 or earlier is, I think, in fact, a real deviation. There was one study um, by some of my colleagues at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in 2011, which actually showed how a 2030 peak could be achieved um, if uh, very stringent coal um, policies were implemented and various other sort of economic restructuring. But there are other than that, um, I think that you see uh, very few uh, scenarios showing that this could be done without much more aggressive actions. Of course, the level of the peak is also quite important, and that's not something that China has specified. So we don't actually we know roughly the time frame, but we don't know will the peak be here? Will it be here? Um, And you can see that different modeling studies again have different numbers for where that may be, ranging from uh, 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide to uh, around 12 gigatons of carbon dioxide. And of course, uh, that difference is actually substantial in terms of the overall climate burden. I think one study that's quite useful to look at uh, is the report that was released uh, last year by uh, Tsinghua and MIT um, because this study, um, and the link I provide here, uh, actually had an accelerated effort scenario. So, this is their most aggressive scenario under their uh, modeling uh, analysis, and they show that essentially. You could get to a 2030 peak if coal use peaked in 2020 in China. So we're now in 2015. Um, you essentially are going to have to reach peak coal in China within five years to see peak carbon dioxide emissions within 10 years after that, um, which is going to be quite, I think, a challenge. Uh, you know, you already see signs of China trying to uh, slow the rate at which they're building new coal fired power plants. Um, and coal use is growing less rapidly than it was at the early part of last decade, but it is still growing. Um, and the I'll stop there. Um, in terms of the carbon intensity targets um, that China has put forth, um, they put forth this target again of 60 to 65 percent decline in carbon intensity from 2005 by 2030. Uh, and if you look again, this is the data that's publicly available from uh, the Department of Energy. Uh, you can see that their reference case shows uh, essentially a 58% uh, decline in carbon intensity. So you're already um, ahead far, you know, of that reference case to get to the 60 to 65%, which means that China will have to do more than um, their, naturally would na- their economy would nat- naturally achieve um, through restructuring that might lead to uh, more efficient use of uh, energy and lower carbon intensity. Um, And then finally, the non-fossil target, I think, is also quite aggressive. This is a study um, that was done by the Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Partnership. This is a a project that pulled forward uh, a lot of the academics and think tanks in China and around the world to model an aggressive renewable energy scenario for China a few years ago. There have been more studies done since then. Um, And again, this study, I think, is useful because it shows the 2030 um, target and and their most aggressive scenario for renewables, they show that China could potentially get up to twenty six, twenty seven um, percent, and the target's twenty percent. So I think that um, you know their middle scenario sort of shows twenty to twenty two percent would be more likely to be achieved. Um, I think China could do more on renewables and low carbon energy, but I think there's a lot of real reasons why um, they. Uh, didn't put forward a more aggressive target, namely that uh, there's a lot of challenges right now because deployment has been so rapid in China in building out wind power and solar power um, that you do see uh, the grid having a hard time keeping up, um, partly with transmission Um, infrastructure uh, construction but also with integration and you have challenges where in northern China in particular where you have excellent wind power resources you're essentially balancing uh, the wind with coal uh, and you end up uh, curtailing huge amounts of wind energy particularly in the winter when heating is needed Um, so all of these challenges are are certainly um, the government is making a lot of strides to address them um, and I think this is what's going to allow this target to be increased in the coming decade um, so finally, I want to mention that I think that you know, China is, has taken these targets uh, not just to show to the world that it is serious about climate change, but because they are actually in its domestic self-interest. Um, of course, we know about the need to address air pollution, and there's a lot of co-benefits when most of the pollution is coming from fossil sources. If you are addressing carbon, you're also getting at local pollution challenges. Um, you are looking to uh, trans- to really uh, reform the economy from an energy-intensive, heavy-industry-dominated um, economy to more service-based. And this is, again, all moving towards the direction of developing high-tech industries, things that are- use less energy. Um, and also, this includes a lot of the technologies which they need to deploy in the, in the energy sector. A lot of the low-carbon technologies, for example, uh, have been identified by the government as strategic industries uh, and are being um, supported for uh, continued development. Uh, and then finally, of course, uh, China is trying to become a more innovative society, less reliant on foreign technology. Um, and you see a lot of interest in low carbon technologies being one of the, the key ways that their technology will evolve and their know-how uh, in the sector. So you see um, a sort of a combination of innovation policies and energy policies really pushing forward a lot of these low carbon technologies. Um, so I think that um, China's INDC targets really are a deviation for business as usual. Um, they will require real and challenging domestic efforts to meet them. Um, there's a lot happening at the local level in China. Um, now that these targets have been put in place at the national level, you see provincial governments around the country very seriously beginning to put forward um, policies to start to measure and regulate carbon dioxide emissions. This is something that most facilities in China have never done before um, because carbon wasn't... Because it wasn't regulated, it wasn't tracked, it wasn't measured, right, and we know that before you can regulate something, you need to know how much of it you have, and so there's a lot of attention being focused on inventories um, at the local level, and of course, um, as Vance mentioned, China's working towards a national cap and trade program to control carbon dioxide, so there's a lot of excitement at the local level about building carbon markets, uh, and again, that requires um, registries and inventories in order to track that um, these intensity targets, again, are a deviation business as usual. I think particularly as we see GDP growth starting to slow in China. Um, the, for example, the EIA scenario that I showed you where China's intensity target is going to decline shows GDP growth declining from, I think it was to about 12% to uh, 6% a year. So you're going to see um, a slowing of economic growth, which makes it even harder to achieve an intensity target. Um, and again, the renewable energy targets, I think, um, while they could be more aggressive, they are tempered probably just by the current challenges that are being faced, and I think that as these uh, are worked out, you may see much more aggressive targets. In the past, uh, it's been very common for uh, renewable energy targets to be put forward, and then later actually increased once they realize that they could act, you know, over, um, overachieve those targets. Um, and finally, all of these targets, of course, will require a major decrease in coal use in China, and this is not going to be easy. Um, I think anyone who says that these targets are just business as usual and will be easy for China to meet are kidding themselves. If you've seen, if you're aware of how much coal is still being used in China and will continue to be burned in the absence of uh, incentives and, and shifts to really um, to change that and. You know, this is, of course, good for air pollution to reduce coal use, but it's not going to be easy for the local economy. Um, A lot of people are employed in the coal industry in China, and, of course, unemployment is um, a potential driver of instability, and that is the last thing that the the Chinese government would like to see. So I think this is going to be a bumpy road, but something that the government's extremely committed to, um, and so I think it'll be interesting to watch how they achieve it in the coming years. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Joanna. And uh, our next speaker is Wang Tao, resident scholar, Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy in Beijing. He's an expert on climate and energy issues and runs a program at the Center for Global Policy, uh, examining China's climate and energy policies with particular attention to transportation and the international climate negotiations. Um, He was uh, previously a program manager at the World Wildlife Fund China, and a researcher at the UK's uh, Tyndall Center at the University of Sussex. Has a really global reputation uh, on these issues. So, Tao, we're glad to hear from you today.
4: Thank you, Paul. It's really a privilege to be here. And also, uh, thanks for coming. Um, Very honored to be able to speak here. I think we have already heard a lot from uh, Vance and also Joanna about what's China's targets and also what China plans to do, especially on the aspect of the energy and climate policies. So I think I will probably spend my 10 minutes on a few things that is probably wider on this and especially to addressing some of the wide pictures in China's economy and the potential risks and barriers we may face. And I will give you some examples of that. I think I will spend my time to talk about three points first, uh, mostly. The first one is China's economy is at a crossroad, and this could lead to uh, what we call the new normal. But also, if we didn't handle well, it could also uh, turn into a catastrophe in the economic side. And that will also affect the um, energy demand from China. The second one is I'll talk about why Chinese government is so committed to these targets and the transitions. The third one, I would uh, uh, make the point that it's imperative for China to success in those energy transition and there is huge risks um, if we didn't do well, and uh, there could be um, potential risks that uh, economy and also other issues will come off real. And I'll give you an example of recent case developed in China. And if I still have some time, I will address a little bit on how U.S.-China could maybe uh, cooperate on that, and I'll give you an example of my recent study. So, um, we all noticed that Chinese economy has slowed down uh, dramatically from over 10% every year to now just about 7%. I think the latest estimate of the economy growth is even lower than that. Um, there are a few even uh, more worrying numbers from the energy indicators. If you look at that as a more accurate estimate of what's going on in the energy and also in economy, the coal consumption in 2014 was for the first time decreased in China in nearly two decades and it was down by 3%. Um, Mostly, I think, it's I wouldn't like to break it that up. Um, basically, I think there are joint forces from both the policies initiated by the Chinese government to improving the air qualities and addressing the climate change issues, but also it's due to the overcapacity of the heavy industries in China. There is an overcapacity and a huge competition among some of the heavy industries. So that also contributes to the reduction of the coal. And if you look at the other uh, fossil fuel energies, the situation is almost the same. If you take crude um, crude oil as one example, China's crude oil has increased so much over the last two decades, and we are now the world largest importer of the world, overtaking U.S., but the growth rate was down to 6%, 6% uh, last year, which also a uh, much lower uh, level in average. And if you look into the details of that consumption, it's more worrying, because we only got the growth in certain category of the oil product, like the gasoline. That is reflected to the demand of the people buying more cars, passenger cars, and driving out. And that is understandable because the passenger car ownerships in China are still much lower compared with the other countries. There is still huge room for people in the third or fourth tier cities to have their first ever car in their family history. So they will drive more and they will um, embrace the um, new convenience uh, being uh, being offered to them by cars but if you look at other um, products like the diesel in China, diesel is most responsible for the um, construction machines agriculture sectors and also the freight um, uh, road freight and trucks um, those demands are actually very weakened. Um, China has been built up a lot of cap- capacities to provide enough diesel uh, for our demand for the past decades, but now we suddenly see the demand has decreased. and for the two years in a row, the diesel demand has declined, and that is also quite unprecedented. Um, if you look at electricity in general, electricity is also decreased in terms of the growth rate. And that is also worrying figures. Most of the uh, coal-fired power plants, even though we are still building more, but the average working hours of the coal-fired power plants in China are decreasing and significantly. Many of them are running at deficits. So there is a worrying figures on that. But as a result of that, there is increase in the share from the non-fossil fuels. So at the moment, over a quarter of China's electricity is generated by the non-fossil fuels like the wind, the solar PV, hydro, and nuclear. And that is and the same level as the European Union, and about a double of the level of the United States. So that is quite um, in encouraging side for, if you look at the renewables, but then it's quite worrying for the uh, coal-fired plants and uh, fossil fuel investments. The next one is natural gas. Natural gas is being identified as a kind of bridge fuel for China because it's much cleaner compared with coal. Many cities uh, actually uh, force the coal-fired plants to move out of cities replaced with the gas, like city in Beijing because of the air pollution. And there's also huge subsidies given by the government to use the LNG in the low rates. So you will be able to reduce those emissions from the transportation and also even lower the cost because LNG is still cheaper in China compared with diesel. But despite that, the growth rate is still far, uh, far lower than the expectations. Many of the Chinese state-owned energy companies signed um, large deals with the um, LNG suppliers in Qatar, in Australia, in Malaysia, and also recently we signed the deal with Russia. But then we realized the demand of the natural gas may not be growing as much as we expected. So there is a concern about how the economy is going. And I think there is a lot of, to do with the recent efforts to clean up the air, to improve the um, non-fossil energy share, but also down to the competition and capacity of the um, heavy industries. China is now at the point where we can no longer rely on the heavy industrialization investment anymore. The second one is why Chinese government is so committed to that. I think we already heard a lot of the reasons, uh, not to mention about the worry about air pollution, air pollution from the major cities. The middle class are really demanding the cities to, or mayors uh, or policymakers to respond to that. And there's a huge pressure from civil government to the local government to respond to that. But there's also China's own uh, plan to produce more and more um, clean energies in there. First of all, China still sees itself as a rising power. And in this process of rising to the uh, global stage, China wants to be seen as a more responsible power. So there is pressure uh, from the international communities, and also for, within them, they want to do more. So there will be uh, better reputations when they become a power uh, in the future. There's also um, competitiveness uh, consideration in there. China is particularly interested in building up its own industrial capacities over the time. So we will be able to become world leaders in some of the new technologies, like the wind power, solar PVs, electric vehicles, high speed railways, or even third generation or fourth generation of the nuclear power. Those are kind of identified by Chinese government and also the uh, scholars as the fourth generation of the uh, fourth industry revolution. We feel like we have missed all these three before, and now this is the fourth one. There's a golden opportunity for China to catch up. So there is a strong motivation even within itself to take responsibility uh, and also take measures to address that. But as I said before, there is very strong risk associated with that. We have talked a lot about China's economy transit into the new normal, and there is huge investment into the renewables, and at the same time, when the Chinese government, the central and local, are trying to fight the pollution by closing down some of the dirty industries. Uh, sometimes by, through the command and control command, which is very uh, strong and arbitrary, and without much leverage for uh, flexibilities, and that could cause problems. Um, for example, there is a city uh, in Shandong province called Lingyi. Shandong province is the, um, China's largest province, uh, China's province with the largest energy demand and possibly the largest uh, emissions. It's a very heavy industry based. Uh, this city is a typical third, fourth tier city. It's very poor, but it's trying to catch up with the industrialization process. Um, they have built into a lot of um, heavy industries. Um, and the previous mayors and policymakers attract them to make the investment into the cities by giving away some of the requirements of environment standards or help them to cut corners uh, in certain investment uh, in environment uh, uh, pollution uh, protections. Then what happens to this new mayor is by the turn of this year, um, the CCTV, which is central China central television, um, they have a program called Dialog, um, basically go around and to some of the um, undercover video and check the situations. And of course, these days air pollution is a big issue, so they are uh, looking at the industries, say, which are uh, those polluters actually causing problems in Beijing. So they kind of like undercover camera of these um, cities which covered with brown and black smokes and very dirty images of the whole city. And in fact, the PM2.5 air pollution index. Are also very poor for the cities, always around the bottom of the of the country. So somehow, suddenly, when this was broadcasted in the national uh, media, in the national city of television, the mayor was so much humiliated, and he was also caught up by his supervisors and got a talk uh, with many persons. And he decided that he is going to lead examples and launch a campaign against the pollution. So from January to May. He's actually literally just stopped a lot of these factories in their cities by command. Asked them to stop the productions unless you can prove that you qualify the environmental qualities and the standards. And the command is very strong and almost immediate effect. There is nothing left for the negotiation. So he is so powerful in those command. Then a lot of businessmen actually run into trouble. For example, some of the steel industries, they run with the huge boilers, the uh, furnace, which has to be maintained at a very high temperature. And he just suddenly asks you, you have to stop um, by a certain day, maybe just a week, and then do all this renovation of your technologies and pollution control. And literally, this furnace is just broken down because you cool down t- too quickly. And there's no maintaining for this uh, temperature. So the total loss for that particular steel mill is over uh, 100, sorry, 100 million, Euro, uh, 100 million Chinese RMBs, or about 20 million US dollars. Um, that almost just killed this factory immediately. And altogether, there are about 400 heavy industries in this city has been stopped. And after four months, about 300 of them are slowly recovering back, and after they get to the Lawrence and also get to the qualified. And about two, 20 or 30 of them just got shut down immediately. And about 70 of them are still recovering. But during the whole process, there are about 60,000 people lost their jobs, because you cannot maintain with the same capacity. And also, there's a huge debt, as I said, to um, previous cases, a huge debt to the companies, to the industries, and they are actually running into huge problems in terms of even the city's own financial uh, revenues, their taxations, their uh, income um, are all shrunk by these measures. So now it's become an ongoing process in China. People can see how harmful if you really become a very hard person on the business business people um, in a very short time and without giving much way to go out. And I don't think this is going to end up like this because the cost at the moment is bear by local banks or local investors and also some of the industries, but they will have to find a way to um, cover that cost or maybe just run out of business. But this damage to the local economy and also the job loss is already... uh, been made and they have to take years to recover and I don't know how this small city is going to recover from that. But certainly they have been cleaning up their environment. They have been better in terms of the air qualities but then people are not really always uh, compromised, uh, sorry, uh, happy about all these changes. So local people are quite pissed off because they lost their jobs. So this is just to give you an example. If the whole country turned into the same situation like this and turn very quickly, if you think China used to be running very fast like a car in the straight way, and now we are seeing that we're going to turn into a more advanced and more consumption driven economy, it's like a very st- steep turn. And we have seen some of signs that the car is already slowing down the speed, which is good. But we have not yet seen that the transition or the turn has been completed. So this is exactly where China is at in terms of economy. And there is all possibilities open at the moment. We could crash, or we could just turn over and then make the um, successful transition. And this is exactly I think people will pay more attention to. Even though we have seen huge and grand uh, roadmap to to, to um, wrap up the investment in renewables, in non-fossil fuels, and also tackling climate change, there is risks, and I think uh, policymakers in China are quite concerned about. The last one, I think, uh, if I still have maybe two minutes, is to talk about what kind of corporations and China could work together in the U.S. I'll give you an example. This is a, a research we've done in China and will be launched tomorrow in Carnegie, so I'm going to advertise. Um, it's something called petroleum coke. It's as an end product of the refinery of the petroleum product. When you import the crude, when you refine the crude, if the crude is heavy and also high in the sulfur content, you will end up a large amount of the petroleum coke or otherwise known as pet coke. And the pet coke is pretty much just carbon. It could be used in either ways, but then what we have, have to find out is actually being it's been used in China as an alternative to coke and also as, as in many other different countries. The world's largest refinery capacity is in the U.S., the second is in China. And when U.S. import more of the tar sands oil from Canada, U.S. end up with a huge pile of the pet coke um, within your own backyard but then there's no way to use them. So they actually export them to different countries, including China. China is a large destination, but that is only account for about one third of that. And then there's another two third of the pet being produced within China because we also have large refinery capacities. And then being burned together with coal or sometimes alone in small and heavy industries, in small and medium industries in the heavy sectors. And that caused huge problem because the sulfur content is very, very high. The normal pet we are talking about has about three or even to five percent of the sulfur content, and we know sulfur dioxide is a major cause of the air pollution. But average coal in China only concern, contains about one percent. So you are talking about three or five times, or even sometimes seven times higher in terms of sulfur dioxide contributions when you are burning pet This has not been recognized by Chinese government as a major source. And there's also problems when China makes the plan for reducing the coal consumption. For example, we try to address the air pollution issues surrounding Beijing. So we come out with a very ambitious plan to reducing the co consumption by about 6 million tons, 60 million tons, around the areas in Beijing. But at the same time, there's no constraint on something like pickup because it's unknown. Um, when you compare with the source and also consumption of pet coke with the coke consumption, you will realize the contribution from the pet coke could quite easily offset all the efforts China made in terms of reducing the air pollution uh, sources of the sub, uh, sulfur dioxide. So this requires both governments to work all together to make sure that we will find a better way to address the issue of sub, uh, that, uh, sulfur dioxide contribution from the pet code, Not just simply export to one country and another country or maybe other different countries and burn them. I think that is a good example how two countries can work together to address number of the issues. But there are many areas I, I found interesting. I will be very happy to answer your questions later on. And thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Tao. And uh, for our concluding speaker, Clay Nessler, who is uh, vice president, corporate sustainability for Johnson Controls. And in that role, he leads the company's Global Environmental Sustainability Council and is responsible for environment and sustainability practices across the company's global manufacturing uh, operations. Uh, Importantly for today, he, among his many other uh, credentials, he serves on the industry advisory board of the U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center. Uh, One of the projects of that center is building efficiency, hugely important in both uh, energy, building energy efficiency, hugely important in both China and the United States, and he's going to Bring a private sector perspective here to a number of these issues. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. How about if we turn up the lights?
5: It's awful dark. You look sleepy. And if we're controlling the temperature with the lights, we have a better solution for that. <laughs> um, thanks to EESI and WRI for the opportunity to represent the private sector in this important discussion today. We're a proud partner of WRI in their new building efficiency initiative, part of the Ross Center for Sustainable Cities. Um, the director, Jennifer Lakey is here, and we have a cheering squad of summer interns. So thanks for coming, guys. Johnson Controls, in case you haven't heard of us, we're a 130-year-old company based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our founder, Professor Warren Johnson, invented the room thermostat. We are very active improving the energy efficiency of both buildings and vehicles. And we have uh, 170,000 employees in 150 countries, about $42 billion in sales. So we are uh, pretty active everywhere, including China. I've spent the last 30 or some odd years in the building efficiency side of our business. We make air conditioning uh, equipment, we make controls, and we do energy services um, in countries all around the world and actively in China. So I'm going to focus on buildings. Why buildings? We've talked about a lot of different things here today. And and, um, I'm reminded of a favorite quote from Willie Sutton. Um, Willie Sutton was asked why he robbed banks. And he said, because that's where the money is. Seemed like an obvious uh, answer to a question. And the reason we're focused on buildings is because 40% of greenhouse gas emissions on a global basis are in buildings and uh, it's probably our greatest and lowest cost opportunity to mitigate the damaging impacts of global uh, climate change. So, buildings it is. But a tale of two countries. In the United States, buildings are all about existing buildings. We tend to build one or 2% of our of buildings every year. There are some years like 2009 where we didn't build much of anything and then we'll boom a little bit. So think one to 2%. We'll also renovate our existing buildings at a rate of about 1 or 2%. If you want to see what a city looks like in the United States in 2030, look out the window. It's going to look pretty much the way it does today. The big issue here is existing buildings. Now, let's uh, jump on a plane for 12 hours or so and go to China. Um, What does a city look like in 2030 I don't know. Find an empty field and it'll be a city, okay? There's tremendous growth there. In fact, China has recently been growing about 2 billion square meters per year. Converted to feet, that's about 20 million square feet. Think Canada. Think every year. 1-1 Canada, 2-1 Canada. Okay, that's the scale of (laughs) construction in China. Why buildings in China? Because they're going to build an awful lot. And we're not talking about India and Brazil yet either. So um, um, think of those kind of dualities there. Um, I did read through the very thick INDC, um, very interesting document, um, Buildings Energy Efficiency mentioned a lot. That's in stark contrast to when we went to COP 15 in Copenhagen, when we looked at the draft text. We figured out what square brackets meant. We figured out everything was in a square bracket. The words that weren't in square brackets or any brackets were energy efficiency or buildings. Um, the nice thing about INDCs is that countries are submitting very detailed action plans of how they're going to address this issue, and they're being very specific. A few of the specifics in China's INDC are in Section E. Improving energy efficiency of buildings. Intensifying energy conservation transformation for existing buildings. Promoting the construction of green buildings and the application of renewable energy in buildings. Music to our uh, uh, hearts there. Uh, really taking serious the opportunity and the challenges in, the, in, the, 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 in their cities and buildings. Another quote, promote the share of green buildings and newly um, built buildings in cities and towns to reach 50% by 2020. 50% of all buildings being green buildings, which means high efficient buildings. Very aggressive. And then finally, Section J. Strengthen R&D, commercialization, and demonstration for low-carbon technologies such as energy conservation. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about R&D, commercialization, and demonstration. As was mentioned earlier, uh, the the acronym CERC stands for uh, Clean Energy Research Center. It's a U.S.-China initiative. It's uh, in its fifth year, so this was announced um, about five years ago as a U.S.-China joint effort. Um, it was recently renewed last year by President Xi and President Obama uh, for another five-year term, so we call it 2.0 or Phase 2. It is, a, it is a, a cooperative agreement between governments, between laboratories and institutes. To give you a sense of the scale of this, there are 1,100 researchers in China and the U.S. working on projects related to U.S.-China CERC. It also includes very active representation of the private sector and business. Its focus is on innovation, commercialization. They've also made great strides in attacking one of the big challenges between cooperative research and uh, development, which is intellectual property. It's been a very successful program. It was highlighted last fall in the announcement and um, um, a lot of expectations going forward. The U.S. Department of Energy, China Ministry of Science and Technology, and the National Energy Agency are are, are all leading government entities in addition to many institutes. They're focused on coal, carbon capture, utilization, and storage, clean vehicles, buildings, and they're creating a new one over the next five years, which is at the Energy Water Nexus the building's one, which is the one we're involved in, uh, is led by Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory as well as Moherd, the Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development. That's the ministry which is focused on building codes and standards and really looks, looks after the built environment. In addition to Johnson Controls, Dow, UTC, 3M, Sangabon, Sage, Lutron, Disney, um, and uh, Water Furnace are all active participants in the building energy efficiency um, we're not involved uh, for philanthropy, we're involved because it's, it's in our best commercial interest. All these companies have real estate, they have activities, manufacturing, view a big business opportunity in both the U.S. and in China for the types of technologies that are being developed through CERC. Um, we are uh, currently constructing a new headquarters in Shanghai, it'll be our Asia Pacific headquarters. And uh, I have the pleasure of working one of the greenest corporate headquarters uh, in the world, probably in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, four lead platinum buildings. We're building that is at least as sustainable and perhaps even more in Shanghai. Its attributes are uh, integrated control, solar PV, battery storage, advanced systems for air filtration, lots of different things. We've invited other CERC partners from both the U.S. and China to come in to create a really demonstration and a test bed of the latest in sustainable tech technologies. We're, uh, um, this building will use 50% less energy than a typical building built to Western standards anywhere, and it will be in Shanghai. The second program I'd like to talk about, um, U.S.-China cooperation, is the Energy Performance Contracting Working Group that David mentioned earlier. We are as well involved in that. It's, uh, in, it involves DOE, the U.S. State Department, obviously, NDRC, and as part of the Climate Change Working Group. It was also announced by President Obama and President Xi as an extension to the many other working group uh, activities. Um, It leverages a contracting uh, uh, methodology called performance contracting. Energy efficiency is unique. It's about the only area of, uh, of, of, of energy where improvements in infrastructure can actually be paid over time. So you can pay for the uh, technology that is installed. You can pay for the financing of the installation. You can pay for commissioning, the verification, financing costs. Everything can be paid over time. It is a unique contracting mechanism. It's the one that the U.S. federal government uses. Federal ESPC, Energy Savings Performance Contracting, which it uses to make improvements in federal government buildings Without using taxpayer or utility ratepayer uh, dollars, it's a very—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's not a particularly new methodology. Um, it's been around since the 80s, but it is a dominant one in the public sector in the United States. What's interesting is again parallel universes. In the United States, 85% of all projects are in the public sector: federal government, state government, city government, schools, healthcare, universities. It's just the opposite in China. Eighty-five percent of the work is in the industrial sector and the private sector, almost nothing done in cities. city. So it's like the same idea has launched their ESCO market, energy service company market, is actually larger than the one here, but they deal with totally different sectors. The real opportunity for us is to take these innovative models of financing from third parties, measurement and verification, um, bundling together projects in a retrofit, and find some innovative models that would apply to each other's markets. If we could come up with models, and in fact we are currently working on pilot projects to demonstrate the the success of these models over the next year, if we can come up with innovative models, learn a little bit from them, They learn a little bit from us, come up with a model. We could double the size of the market in the U.S. and more than double the size of the market in China, as well as attract third-party financing. There isn't enough public in the money. There isn't enough public money in the world to address these challenges. We need to bring in the financial institutions, and we're all very hopeful that this might be a path towards that. So... um, Finally, um, and that lines up perfectly with the INDC section K, explore new investment and financial mechanisms for low carbon development such as public-private partnerships. So again, very consistent with what they've stated as their goals. Just in summary, public-private partnerships will be a critical element in protecting the environment, stimulating economic growth, and providing a range of other social benefits. Because the challenges are so large, the largest countries should individually and collectively leverage to the fullest extent possible their public sector, private sector, and civil society resources in collaborative partnership to capitalize on the significant opportunities to mitigate the harmful impacts of global climate change. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much, Clay, and thank you all for terrific presentations. So, let us now open it up for your questions. And if you could please identify yourself when you ask your question. Who wants to start? Um, I'm Lisa Friedman from Climate Wire, energy Policy Magazine here. Thank you guys for doing this. This
6: was all really interesting. Um, I have a short question for. And also for for um, can I mention that the volume of emissions when China is expected to be? Can you just repeat that so I was not got it? And can you give us a sense of how much emissions will is expected to grow before the peak happens? Can you just talk a little bit more about,
0: about that. Okay. So the question is with regard to the peak, and talk about China's that.
3: There. Okay. okay. Sure, Sure. and I, you know, maybe it'd be easy if I sort of break down the numbers and I can send to you as well, but I had mentioned that um, what the modeling studies show is a peak in 20, if you peak in 2030, that number could range from 10 to 12 gigaton CO2. Um, And so you can look at the trajectory from now to there, and you can also look at sort of higher higher end ranges and earlier end ranges, So, and I can send you those breakdowns if that would be useful.
6: So that that would be a total 10 to 12 CO2 gigaton CO2.
3: That that would be in 2030. So not a total burden. That's an annual
6: number. Okay. Do you have any sense of how much the total growth will be before the peak happens? I'd have to look off the top of my head where they are. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, Did you have another question? Okay. Great. Okay. Uh, Back here first.
6: I'm uh, Eleanor Bastion with Congresswoman Diana DeGette. I was wondering if, via CERC or any of the other working groups, uh, there's been any notable progress in CCS on bringing the crackdown, down, making it more economic or more deployable. Okay, so the question is
0: with regard to CERC and progress in terms of making uh, uh, CCS more affordable. Yeah.
2: Um, So um, I can start on this. Um, we have uh, a variety of different. Sorry, I actually don't think I can see who asked the question. <laughs> uh, we have a variety of different projects that are CCUS cooperation with China under the CCWG. We have six uh, under the CERC. There are uh, additional research projects focused on large-scale carbon capture, utilization, and storage. In the joint announcement from November, the presidents announced an additional two projects, which they're currently scoping out and, and intend to do the site selection of uh, this fall. Um, I think that overall, the the scope of these projects uh, probably focuses on the U of the CCUS, which is the utilization part, and and let me start by saying I'm not the CCS expert, and I'd be happy to help direct you to our DOE colleagues who, who are actually on the ground implementing these, but my understanding is that where the technology is at now is there's enough uncertainties that we need to jointly demonstrate a variety of different types of applications and the way that we make that cost effective now is with the U and what that means is using carbon capture for some other purpose like enhanced water recovery or enhanced oil recovery and a lot of our projects are focused on these public-private partnerships that are combining innovative technology demonstration with enhanced water, enhanced oil recovery so it's an actually a a cost-effective project. And through the maturation of that technology, then we start to look towards longer-term pure storage projects. But I know the CERC has more pure research uh, elements of it. The two announced announced projects from last November, uh, one of them is a major, straight, large-scale CCS, so carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and sequestration project. but overall, I think they're focused more on that on that you, so that we can demonstrate the technologies that will then be uh, commercially applicable over a longer term uh, time frame. Uh, and by long term, I mean long term, right? And most most of these models in the twenty, you know, what percentage of. Uh, coal-fired power plants or industrial facilities will be equipped with CCS by 2030. I think it's debatable. By 2050 or 2100, I think that's going to be, uh, uh, I think it's undeniable that it'll be a much higher percentage.
0: Did anyone else want to add anything? Um, okay, Rick right here first.
6: Hi, yes, thank you. I'm wondering, you know, a lot of what we've heard about today is the collaboration between the US and China and how fantastic that is. And I agree, as I'm sure we all do, that really a lot of the gains made only happened because of this collaboration. But I'm wondering if, in the unfortunate situation that the US has a president in 2016 that doesn't actually believe that climate change is happening, if China, if, you know, the panelists anticipate that China would maintain its, you know, Kind of trajectory in terms of cutting its emissions or whether or not they would feel less of an obligation to
0: do so okay so the question is what happens in terms of the all of the cooperation in the planned and trajectory um, if the politics in the U.S. change in the presidential election
3: Joanna I'm happy to start. I think that's a great question. And you know, it's certainly true that the Chinese government is watching very carefully what happens in Washington. That said, um, every target that's in China's INDC is part of its uh, 13 five-year plan and subsequent plan. So these are, are committed in domestic law, essentially. These are going to be implemented. Um, you know, China usually doesn't put forward targets that they know they won't come close to meeting. Um, because they would rather put something forward that they, you know, have an actual shot at, um, and so I think that these two things, you know, the, the U.S. and Chinese politics are certainly intertwined, but they're not necessarily linked in that context. Um, I think that you, I think that the fact that you know the Obama Climate Action Plan exists has allowed um, you know China and other uh, emerging economies to be more constructive in the international climate negotiations. So I do think that that's very important. Um, but no, I don't think that China would just you know, withdraw its targets, change them in any way. As I mentioned and others mentioned, I think there's a lot of reasons um, why it's in China's own self-interest interest to um, move its economy in a low-carbon direction, and it's, it's not just because of Paris and, and COP21. Um, it's because of real challenges at home with the economy uh, and with air pollution public health.
2: Thanks. I'll just add a quick comment. The the structure of these targets are nationally determined, and China from the beginning is very clear that it's nationally determined targets. It's not conditional on anything that the United States or any other countries uh, do, and the targets that they've uh, formalized in the INDC are not conditional. Uh, So I I wouldn't expect, and I'm sure that China would give the same answer, that these are their domestically established, nationally determined targets that they're doing for their own Domestic reasons, and I don't expect that they would change. Now, the the U.S.-China climate bilateral cooperation, I think, could have could be impacted by a change of administration. But the bottom, you know, this bilateral cooperation is designed to uh, support, enhance, accelerate uh, progress, uh, particularly in China. And if that were reduced. You know, we would we would miss some opportunities, I think, but China is still going to meet those uh, meet their targets.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Maybe just quickly end on uh, another aspect. I think um, it's important to understand what China promised is, as the two colleagues already mentioned, is the domestic um, measures and targets. It's already itself uh, legalised within China, and also those targets are not conditioned on what other countries will be doing. So there's no uh, chance that China will withdraw its own targets if there is um, a change in the United States, uh, commitment to climate change. But nonetheless, I think there is something we may have concern. Uh, David already mentioned that the cooperation may be affected if there is uh, less cooperative uh, emissions from US on China. But I will also say that China do all these things not only just for the air pollutions, not only for the climate change, but also there is an industry policy uh, concern there, there's competitiveness of the national uh, economy, and also there's energy security concern there. So they want to, uh, they, they hope to increase the share of the non-fossil fuels so they will be more safe uh, in terms of energy supply. And that will be a case when there is a peaceful and more um, uh, friendly environment for China. But then if there is anything done wrong between um, China or U.S., and then suddenly there is a more hostile um, environment towards China's security of the energy supply, then it's quite reasonable that China may have to return back to the most abundant energy source, which is coal. And unfortunately, that will be a cost to both China and also to the world. So, if you think about in the better situations, we could have more uh, secured um, import of oil and gas, and even from directly uh, from from U.S. to help China to improve energy security. Then certainly, there will be much more. Uh, incentive of China to reduce consumption of coal, but then if something happens and China feels that the oil and the gas supply are both and threatened and also the renewable will take longer time to compensate for this loss of the, for example, gases, then there is an unfortunate choice maybe return to the coal. So that's also worth noting. Okay. Um, back, okay,
0: back here first and then we'll make sure we get around.
6: Okay.
0: Go ahead. Yes, you. Yeah.
6: Um, this is for Kepa Wang. Um, and could you, you identify a, yourself, please? Karen Pollard from um, Representative in the Office. Of Washington. Um, are you seeing that China is, is setting the groundwork for a, um, with these uh, targets to be reached in a way that does not um, command the command and control way that you said that could disrupt their economy?
0: Are they doing can you hear me? Okay, yeah, yeah. No. yeah. It, do you want to repeat her
4: question? I'm it, okay. so. If I understand right, um, you're asking that whether China is setting the targets uh, purely based on the command and control measure so they were not upset economy.
6: I was actually asking, are they are they working towards meeting those targets without having to use the are they setting the groundwork so that you be done in a way that's not going
0: to affect the... the sort the policies and actions that China is proposing being done in a way that would not require?
6: And are they setting the groundwork
0: command and control? So, are they setting groundworks so that would not require?
4: No, not uh, in that way. I think um, the usual way China most familiar with is actually through the command and control because of <laughs> <laughs> the history. If China become a country that must rely on the market-based instrument to reach and target, that would be quite uh, good news for us to know. They, <laughs> so it's actually the opposite. It's China still might very much rely on the command and control, like the co-consumption targets. You just have to reduce 30 or 40 million tons by 2017, and there is no economic incentives for them to achieve that. So one area I think that the U.S. and China could work together is actually U.S. to help and also the other different countries to help China to better understand how to use market-based instruments mm-hmm. to achieve those targets with less disruption uh, to the uh, society and to the economy. I think that would be much helpful for China to, re- to reach the targets. But certainly this target at the moment, I think China has very much in their mind they will reach these targets through a combination of the uh, minist- uh, market-based uh, instrument as well as command control, but there is always room to improve the use of the multi instrument, and I think there is still uh, a lot of areas that uh, we are purely just rely on the command control, and, and, and increasingly prove that uh, less capable.
0: Okay, uh, we'll go to
1: you first.
2: Hi, um, I'm David Allen from the Center of Climate Strategies, and I just had a general question uh, we talked a lot about how China, as a rising global power, feels a lot more pressure um, in terms of its commitment towards INDC. Does that have any um, bearing on how it sort of interacts with other large emitters that have yet to turn in their INDCs? As we only have 17 INDCs in place, I don't know if it's looking more outward towards India for such who hasn't put a pledge uh, an emissions peak year yet, um, or is it going to sort of stay domestic and keep things
0: um, okay. Oh, do
1: want do you, you want to share? Paul, and do you want to repeat the question? Yeah, so I, as I understand the question, you're asking about what is the momentum effect of the China uh, decision uh, on other countries. Um, and I, I guess I'll just provide a perspective on this because I don't think there is sort of one single answer to it. Um, countries react in different ways. Uh, what they say is not only not always uh, what they feel. And, of course, countries have multiple spokespeople. But uh, w- one way to start answering your question is that countries often don't want to admit that they're taking action because of another country taking action. They want to say it's for their own reasons, and that's because domestically, uh, they, they won't be able to say that. Um, on the other hand, uh, countries are always wary of whether other countries will take action. Because in a situation where they think there's going to be uh, a com- potentially a competitive impact, Um, they want to be able to tell their constituents that we're not doing this by ourselves, we're not moving unilaterally, and that other countries are acting. So on the one hand, uh, India, take India as an example, going into Lima, which was shortly after the joint announcement of the U.S. and China, uh, there were people in the Indian government who said that, uh, no, this wasn't going to affect them, they had their own reasons and they were making up their own minds. On the other hand, um, the former environmental minister of India under the previous administ- administration, uh, Mr. Ramesh, uh, said that the China-U.S. Uh, accord had broken the logjam and no longer India no longer had anybody to hide behind. So I, I think you can see what, what I'm saying. they are going to be Different optics, but um, there's no no question in my mind that it's easier for uh, countries to move forward when they move forward together. And so the dynamic here is entirely uh, a positive one out of uh, out of that joint announcement and the joint effort that's continuing to take place. And there are examples of countries that have, in fact, uh, the climate ambassador for the European Union, uh, Laurence Tobianus, said that she thought it was having a very positive effect on other countries and that Europe itself uh, would like to engage with China. And since then, I think it actually has reached uh, some additional agreements. And there there are other
2: examples. Go ahead, thanks. I'll just make one quick comment about Uh, In the last two, three months, we've seen China come out with uh, joint statements on climate change with uh, India, China-India statement, with Brazil, China-Brazil statement, with the EU, China-EU statement. And I think that it's not that we started a trend, the U.S. and China, but I think we showed uh, that there's uh, a real opportunity for countries to come together, have dialogue, stand up and say things like, we are committed to working together to achieve a global deal. We are committed to sharing experience and, and working cooperatively to meet this challenge. And all of these statements sort of have these broad themes. And it doesn't mean that when it comes to the Paris negotiations that everything is easy and you know, the, the path to a successful deal is clear. Uh, because we still, it's still very difficult and there's a lot of work to do uh, in those negotiations. But it does mean you have these overarching frameworks at the leader level It really establishes trust and a sense that these countries are committed, even though it's, it's in the weeds, it gets very difficult, but both countries are committed to achieving a global deal and sort of see the end game as the same thing. And that's part of what's breathing momentum into the, the negotiations in the sense that this is really possible.
0: Okay. I okay. There are two questions here and then up here. Okay, back here. Mm-hmm. Go ahead.
6: Hi, I'm Catherine Krasny with the U.S. China Economic and Security Review Commission. I had two kind of a two-part question. One was too, too long, and one was too a little bit too nestler. Um You keep mentioning a couple of times competitiveness, and China has mentioned leading China 2025 with the Industry 4.0 mm-hmm. and energy efficiency 20 of that. Uh, what support have you seen thus far for developing those domestic firms? The 12-5 year plan uh, focused really on solar and wind and now China's a major producer there. Um, and then uh, the second part is market access. Uh, there's huge opportunities for uh, businesses in the entire you know, energy efficiency buildings all of that, the question
0: is market access. Uh, how much market access is available for foreign firms? Uh, it's definitely not gonna be 100%, but um, I guess what are you guys seeing thus far? Okay, so two two questions. One, dealing with competitiveness, sort of looking at sort of the form, um, uh Revolution and, and what does that mean with regard to, to particularly with regard to looking at at vehicles and then the second question was to Clay with regard to looking at market access and how much of it do you anticipate based upon what you're seeing? Okay. Thank you for
4: the question. I think we mentioned about China necessities to transit economy, and the way they want to transit economy is to both to um, change the driver from investment to consumption, and also to upgrade its own manufacturing. So we have done a lot of manufacturing and heavy industrializations uh, in the past, and now China feels like uh, because of the environment constraint and all the other issues, they want to upgrade their economy so they will be able to climb higher in the uh, value chains in the manufacturers. this China, like uh, 2025, is exactly responding to that, and also China wants to, and has been investing heavily on the innovation, on R&Ds, um, through uh, national subsidies and also uh, national investment in universities and research labs. Um, they want to be able to transit to an economy that is more based on the innovation based on the science, based on the more high-value-added industries instead of you know, um, low-cost low competitions and uh, very low-skill uh, level. So these are, um, I think this is just one example of how they want to do it. This is a more comprehensive uh, plan for that, but to be honest, this is also quite new to many of the people within China. So they are still trying to figure out what exactly this means as a more comprehensive manufacturing upgrading strategies. Um, of course, we have seen a lot of support from Chinese government in promoting some of the industries like the wind power, solar PV, uh, high-speed railways, and recently also on the electric vehicles through subsidized to the R&D and also subsidies for the installation and purchase. And um, There are also R&D projects that have been designated to the universities to help them to improve their capacity. All those things will be brought into uh, the same framework, and I think um, it's... Uh, ultimate goal for China to reach there. They really aim at, for example, countries like Germany and Japan for its future industries. But whether this is going to be that easy, I think we still have to see.
5: Okay. I'm not sure how typical we would be. We've been in China for decades, so we've kind of grown with the economy there. Um, we take slightly different approaches in different sectors, and I, I think that that's probably the key to success. In some cases, we have joint ventures with China-owned enterprises in, in some some sectors, and in others, we go direct with the manufacturing and distribution. Um, 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 that's been in place for many, many years within China. So I'm not sure how typical that would be for companies entering um, um, China in this particular space of clean energy, but that's been our experience.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, we'll, take, we'll take, did you also still have a question? I do, but Okay, all right, so let's take, you'll be the last two questions back here first and then to you, Bob. Things got
2: Over Uh
6: I guess for David, I'm sort of wondering, uh, looking at the 2020 time frame, the whatever agreement they do in Paris
1: is supposed to enter into force at that time. So we have this five-year gap that somewhere along the way, negotiators talked about also looking at some ambition in this period, so it's not a lost
4: time, you know, time for action. Um, what do you what do you envision that time uh, sort of being spent on, in the sense that?
1: Becoming more, maybe more and more apparent that this won't be a treaty in the sense that it will require ratification, at least here in the US. But that was sort of the idea for having that five year gap. So, what
5: should the, these
4: nations be doing over act, uh, that five year period in your mind?
2: Okay, do you want to repeat the question? Sure, the question is about what nations should be doing in the 2015 to 2020 period, and I think you're referencing to uh, efforts to increase ambition in the pre-2020 time period before a new Paris Agreement comes into force. Um, I guess the the best way I can answer that is to say that most countries have put their 2020 targets on the table, including the United States and China. Uh, I don't expect that those uh, are going to change. So the first thing we have to do, both countries, is, is ensure that we have the policies and measures and technologies in place to achieve those commitments. Uh, but looking longer term, right? We, you can't evaluate the, the success of a deal just based on a single snapshot of where we're at in 2020 or 2025. What we need to look at is are we increasing ambition over time on a cycling system? And does the deal create a system for increasing ambition over time? Are we uh, accelerating the rate of change in a way that's consistent with long-term deep decarbonization? And the the targets that the United States and China have established in the 2020, 2025, 2030 timeline, I think meet those criteria. Um, the not the U.S. specifically, our trajectory, if you will, looking through 2020 and 2025, puts us on a trajectory towards long-term deep decarbonization on the order of above 80% reduction by 2050, which is sort of a widely used metric for where developed economies need to be. China has not put forward a post-2030. There isn't really a post-2030 guide for China yet, uh, except I would point to China regularly uses language, uh, including in the joint announcement, about long-term low-carbon economy, about increasing ambition, about being mindful of the two degrees. And these are the kinds of signals that we need to see, especially linked to one of the first questions, is what's China's CO2 level going to be in 2030? It's a question we don't know the answer to, one of the reasons is because there's so much uncertainty right now, and how China's—I think probably more, much more in China than in the United States—about how China's economy uh, will grow and develop and restructure over the next 15 years. That are going to determine not just what's that number in 2030, but what does that trajectory look like. And the truth is, if China levels off, and and you know, if China adopts an economic growth model that levels off even at a lower level, but doesn't change for the next 30 years, that's that's not going to get us where we need to go. right? China needs and is working towards an economic transition that we'll see at peak and then following the peak to see a long-term decline. Uh, and we're seeing that in the rhetoric and in the language and in the way that China adopts uh, low-carbon economy as a fundamental driving principle of its development that I think are very encouraging. So. Um, I guess that's, you know, 2020, I think we focus on meeting the targets, enhancing cooperation, but also showing those long-term signals to ensure that uh, we meet our, our long-term agreed
4: goals. Okay. Bob. Yeah, I'm
0: Bob
1: Bartolo from Senator Case's office. So in the United States, we have the Department of Energy, Energy Information Administration, collecting all this information, NREL. What are the analogs
0: for in China for collecting
4: all this information? Is that level of detailed information available for what China is doing or uh, currently?
0: Okay, so the question is, so what are the analogs to data collection in China um, compared to, the like uh, in the U.S. where we have EIA and NREL
3: that do a lot of data monitoring, uh, um, capturing? Um, I can start, and it's a great question. I think that the main statistical agency in China, the National Bureau of Statistics, has a large energy statistics division, so they would be the central um, authority for collecting data. And they would work directly with the agencies in China that would be responsible. So they would work directly with the National Development and Reform Commission to collect the data um, and then put it in their central system. Um, similarly, with the Ministry of Environmental Protection. Um, and you know, but to your question, of sort of do they have comparable um, uh, you know, accounting in place? Not quite. <laughs> They're getting there. Uh, They're collecting it in the present time. No, 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 they are collecting it. But it's a question of capacity, and it's a question of accuracy, and it's a question of scale. So it's certainly being collected. Um, and I think you can see that signs that accuracy is improving. And I don't know if you're talking about energy. You're talking about carbon. These are actually different things. Because energy data has been collected for a while. Um, but carbon data had not been collected at the facility level. China has implemented a mandatory reporting um, for large facilities, similar to what EPA did many years ago in the United States. So the EPA is ahead of the game, and the companies have been reporting for a long time in anticipation of regulation uh, in the US. And China is, is still catching up. Uh, the fact that the government in China has announced the intention to implement a national uh, emissions trading program of some kind has Essentially, meant they need a national registry. They need all the big emitters and facilities within that registry. So all the provinces have been tasked with putting that together. Some are uh, have moved, you know, further along than others. And it's what you would think: it's the wealthier, sort of higher capacity provinces like Shanghai, which has a very rigorous uh, registry system. They're working with California and the European Union to make sure that that meets uh, international standards. Whereas, you know, provinces in the west would be farther behind. Did you want to add? Huh? Yeah. Maybe.
4: yeah. Um, yes, let me just add a few things. I think the transparency of the Chinese energy data has always been a question to many of the researchers, and also uh, has been uh, errors. And China, uh, together with international partners, try to work improving it. Uh, for example, the NDRC, uh, the um, economic planning authorities in China, has its own research called Energy Research Institute. They have been working together with IEA, the International Energy Agency, uh, for quite a long time to improve in China's energy statistics. Um, there are also other sources. Then you can connect the energy um, data. For example, in China, you also we also have this association of industries. So you can actually connect the data not only from the regional level but also through the sector. And then you will be able to compare the data when you end up all the regions and together with the sectors. But then sometimes the um, the data are not always matching up. There is uh, big deviations uh, for the last few years' data, and that's also why Chinese. Uh, Central, the Statistics Bureau also announced recently a uh, large revision of this data and, and upright the, uh, actually revised up the co consumptions uh, quite a bit uh, for the last few years. And that's also because of, due to the different statistical and methods and also approaches. And especially for co, it's very difficult. But I think the improvement is being in place and they're trying to work on that. And also, there is difficulties in China's uh, existing statistics systems. Um, people in developing world, developed world are very uh, familiar with this type of the categories and um, uh, how you actually categorize different emissions and energy demand into different sectors. And while I was doing that research in the UK, I found that China's energy statistics categories are never matched with that being uh, used in the Western world. give a good example, um, transportation in China being accounted as very small in terms of share of energy consumption, which is not correct But the reason being that is the transportation in China is only accounting for the transportation itself. All the freight, lorries, or even the company fleet are already attributed to the industrial emissions. So there are different categories and how you've been connecting them and put them into different places. So all these differences has to be addressed, and China itself also has to slowly uh, change and improve uh, the categories they are using now to a more international internationally uh, coordinated and acceptable manner. So that is also quite a challenging task.
0: But it sounds like it is definitely underway and it that the government is committed
4: to, to moving forward
0: in that direction. Yeah. Um, uh, Paul, did you want to make any... Do we have a oh, no. we, we need to okay. Okay. okay, go ahead. Yeah,
1: what well, you make I, I think... Uh, thank you. I think I just wanted to uh, thank everyone for this superb uh, panel and invite everyone to follow up uh, afterwards. I guess just as a closing 15 seconds, I wanted to highlight something that a couple of folks said, um, that China's own interest uh, makes it imperative uh, to undertake uh, an economic shift, that it's ended uh, the, the phase in which it could follow uh, its old model. So it has very strong incentives to follow, to, to avoid the risks that uh, Tao mentioned, although there are undoubtedly risks there. And in, as, it, as it is doing this, uh, and there are uh, many interesting studies and so on out there to, to, that describe how this is taking place, um, it's certainly suspenseful. We don't know the conclusion yet. But there is an imperative that the leadership recognizes. And in moving in this way, it's setting an example Uh, for other countries uh, and for the rest of the world. And and that may be partly an additional answer to uh, the question that the gentleman asked earlier about whether there's there's uptake on this uh, in in other countries.
0: Great, Paul. Um, Thank you. And this whole area is one that is fascinating. It's extremely important. It is continuously evolving. And we plan to be following this as we move through uh, the summer, the fall, through the Paris negotiations so that we can hopefully then, uh, at the beginning of the year, come back and really look at what is uh, sort of uh, transpiring at that point, Uh, what are the points of progress, what new information do we have. Uh, and at this time, I want to thank all of you for being here and staying to hear our wonderful panel. And I want to thank our panel very, very much. And, and of course, uh, our partners at WRI. So thank you all very much for coming. And thank you.